This podcast may contain adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. As always, we would love to hear your feedback and any episode suggestions you may have. Do you know of an obscure historical story or case you're dying to hear a podcast about? If so, send us an email or find us on Twitter. In this episode, we conclude the fascinating case of the Midnight Assassin of Austin, Texas, which we began last episode. If you haven't listened to that one, you might want to do so, as now we pick up where that episode left off. And now, let's deep dive back into this chilling case. Buckle your seatbelts, because it's about to get a whole lot crazier. Soon after the double murder that took the lives of Gracie Vance and her boyfriend, Orange Washington, a young black man named Doc Woods was arrested on suspicion of the murder because he had allegedly once been rejected by Gracie. As in all of the prior arrests, there was absolutely no evidence against the young man. At the end of this long, dreadful weekend, the private detective Hennessy returned to town with his associates and jumped straight back into the investigation. Within a few days, he announced that he had been tipped off by a young teenage boy who'd heard a local chicken thief discuss the crimes from the first-person perspective. The boy also claimed to have followed the thief to some of the crime scenes just prior to the murders. The chicken thief's name was Oliver Townsend, a well-known criminal and the perfect scapegoat since he was known for sneaking in and out of people's yards quietly to steal the chickens. Furthermore, Hennessy said he'd gained information from Lucinda and Patsy, Gracie's friends who had survived that attack. They said that Doc Woods had been observed near the scene of Gracie and Orange's murder on the night in question. Obviously, these two men were working together on these crimes. Hennessy announced this at a press conference on the steps of the Capitol building, all too ready to revel in the glory of solving the case. Thankfully, the reporters were not completely convinced, and so they did their own investigating and discovered that Lucinda and Patsy were so badly injured that neither could conduct any sort of conversation with Hennessy. They found it more likely that Hennessy had paid this teenage boy to falsely accuse the two men of the murders. He had overlooked the indisputable fact that Doc Woods had a very good alibi on the night of the murders, provided by his employer. Hennessy refused to back down and named yet another man, Alec Mack, as someone else in this gang of murderers. Mac had already been questioned and released, but Hennessy went ahead and arrested him again, subjecting him to a long and violent interrogation. Basically, anyone still in town had lost all faith in these incompetent detectives, and by October, they were run out of town. 
The city then announced a reward of $250 for any tips leading to the arrest of the murderer. This is the equivalent of around $6,700 nowadays, so not the largest of rewards, but it was a good start. Of course, this kind of incentive led to many more tips on random black men who were deemed suspicious. There were a few more pointless arrests that went nowhere, and they even tailed a local Malaysian immigrant named Maurice for a few days. But of course, nothing came of any of this. Everyone was desperately buying guns and even arming their servants and giving them shooting lessons for protection. And plenty of local servant girls were leaving the city in fear. Eventually, though, it seemed the locals were starting to reassess their opinions on who might be perpetrating these crimes. Now, instead of thinking of a group of criminals working together, some thought it might be the work of one cold, calculating, evil man. An unknown local reporter wrote about this in the San Antonio Daily Express and christened him the Midnight Assassin. This is what we've chosen to call him, since it is much more accurate than the servant girl annihilator, when you consider how his crime spree continues. The apparent lack of motive seemed to confuse and scare people the most. Of course, there'd been plenty of maniacs who'd killed multiple people before, but usually they were the criminally insane and easily apprehended. They had really, if ever, dealt with someone that seemed to lack any control whatsoever, as indicated by the overkill of some victims, but who also was calm and collected enough to enter and exit these crime scenes without being caught. It was also unusual that at least one person was left alive at each crime scene. If he was completely out of control, why not savagely attack and brutalise everyone at the scene? On the contrary, he seemed to target one particular person and anyone else that might get injured or murdered in the process was simply collateral damage. In a way, this supports the assassin moniker. As an example, in the crimes where children were present but not an intended victim, none were injured at all, perhaps because they posed no threat or obstacle to the killer. Was the killer taunting the police by leaving someone alive at each scene? It's very possible that he was nonchalantly showing how brazen and confident he felt. He could leave a living witness and still not get caught. Furthermore, it could be perceived as a demonstration of his complete control. He was able to focus so completely on one victim that he often didn't even touch the other people in the room. This is just conjecture, of course, so take it with a grain of salt. Another confounding aspect of this crime spree that puzzled locals was the continued anonymity the Midnight Assassin sought. It might sound unusual now, but at the time, people were used to stories of murderous outlaws that killed countless people, but these criminals were often proud of their exploits and bragged about them. Wild West outlaws were practically the celebrities of their time, hence why we still recognise many of their names 150 years later. As a side note, it's worth mentioning that prior to the Midnight Assassin, there had actually been several serial killers in the US. The reason we don't know about them, though, 
is that they were mostly poisonings conducted by women. Those stories did not travel far outside the states where they occurred, and in many cases, money was the motive. They were likely to be exciting news stories at the time, but not significant enough to be remembered now, except by serious true crime nerds. The Midnight Assassin was, in theory, the first American serial killer to fit the modern definition of the term. Everyone was unnerved and terrified at the thought of the kind of monster that was lurking among them. At the end of November, a very surprising thing happened. The county grand jury indicted Walter Spencer for the murder of his girlfriend Molly Smith. The prosecutor for the trial just so happened to be the younger brother of the mayor, so quite possibly there was some corruption happening behind the scenes, especially with the imminent mayoral election. However, the incumbent mayor, Robertson, ended up winning by about 50 votes. The next week was Spencer's murder trial, and fortunately, after only one day of testimony, he was acquitted. There was absolutely no evidence against him, and the prosecutor's assertion that, in an attempt to look innocent, Spencer had hit himself in the head with an axe was laughable. Austin's marshal, Grooms Lee, was coming to the end of his term, and while some residents considered him completely useless in his position, others saw him as just a pencil pusher in the wrong job. Consequently, they were eager to replace him with somebody who might actually catch the killer. The elected man was named James Lucy, who'd been the captain in the Texas Rangers and was known for being highly intelligent. He took over his new position right before Christmas, and the whole city was filled with optimism once again. Austinites were desperate to go back to the thriving, happy city it had once been. Their optimism turned out to be extremely short-lived. On Christmas Eve, just a few weeks shy of the one-year anniversary of the first murder, the Midnight Assassin struck again. This night would go down in Austin history for how brutal and brazen it was and was long remembered for the effect it had on the city. Susan Hancock was a white woman from a prosperous family married with children and living in a nice house in a neighborhood of well-heeled white families. That night, she was found in her yard, hacked in the head with an axe and stabbed in the ear. Impossibly, she was still alive when the new marshal got to her house. Her husband, Moses, informed the marshal that he and his wife slept in separate bedrooms and sometime after falling asleep, he heard a noise. When he went to check on her, he discovered her bed empty, her window open, and piles of her clothing strewn across the room. He went outside and found his wife lying in the yard covered in blood, and saw a shadowy man run out of the yard and down the road. The murder weapon, an axe, was found in the yard and actually belonged to the Hancock family. It usually lived with the woodpile. Just as the Hancock residence was full of panic and swarming with police, someone from the police department rode up on a horse and exclaimed that there had been a second attack 
again, a woman who had been chopped up with an axe. This was a 17-year-old named Ulla Phillips, the wife of a prominent architect. She had been hit several times in the head with an axe and was found in her own yard. The crime had been discovered by Ulla's mother-in-law, Sophie, who had found Ulla's husband, Jimmy, unconscious in the bed and covered in blood. When Sophie's husband ran outside to look for Ulla, he found her badly mutilated body. Jimmy had a large gash on his head and was bleeding heavily, but soon regained consciousness. The murder weapon, an axe belonging to the family, was found inside the young couple's bedroom. Again, this axe was usually kept in the backyard on the woodpile. When Ulla was found, she had some wood from the woodpile placed on her body. This was a strange new addition for the killer's MO. Word quickly spread that the killer was now targeting white people and the city completely lost its mind. Most residents were terrified to stay in their homes and so despite the fact that it was the middle of the night, people began to gather downtown. It felt somewhat safer in a crowd than alone in one's bedroom. Many downtown store owners opened their doors and lit their lamps, for even the most logical adults were now afraid of the dark. The front page of the Austin Statesman was blasted with the headline, Blood, 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 the demons have transferred their thirst for blood to white people. There had been one solitary bare footprint found in the blood on the carpet of the Phillips home. The marshal ordered Oliver Townsend, Doc Woods and Alec Mack to the station to have their bare feet printed and, predictably, none matched the killer's print. Now that white people were in danger, the city finally decided to hire 20 more police officers. As further precautions, the city decided to close all places that sold alcohol at midnight, and the mayor hired the renowned Pickerton Detective Agency out of Chicago. The city was on high alert. People were essentially boarding themselves up in their houses, and the city had blown up in the media, terrifying citizens in neighbouring states. Susan Hancock had not succumbed to her wounds, and for the moment she was in her own home on the brink of death. Ulla was given the celebrity death treatment. The city mourned her as though she was their own daughter. She had been young and beautiful, and her loss was viewed as the biggest tragedy thus far. The next day, Mrs Hancock passed away, and for the first time, white suspects were arrested. Two men with small specks of blood on their clothing had been seen on a train leaving Austin and were arrested though it was quickly proven that they had boarded the train at a different stop and the blood was from an innocent fistfight between them. To add further folly, the mayor had made a serious error by hiring the wrong Pinkerton detective agency from Chicago. This agency was in fact started by a man sharing the same last name who'd hoped to cash in on the coincidence and who claimed to be associated with the world-famous agency. The detectives who showed up had never actually been involved in a murder. The mayor decided not to reveal his mistake and allowed the fraudulent detectives to stick around and investigate the crimes, 
paying them with city funds that were intended for the real detectives. An increased reward of $3,000 was now set for anyone who could provide information leading to the capture of a suspect. After the avalanche of new tips from the reward announcement, they arrested a homeless Mexican named Anastasio Martinez. While they had no evidence to arrest him for the murders, it was obvious to them that he was not mentally well, and so they had him committed to the lunatic asylum. Not that it would do any good, since the asylum at the time had basically no security. Dr. Denton, who ran the asylum, was more concerned with giving the patients a peaceful and rejuvenating place to live, rather than keeping them under lock and key. The city also decided to round up all the homeless people and drove them out of town. The town had been flooded with even more media since the Christmas murders. A reporter from the New York World wrote a rather compelling description of the type of person who may have committed the crime. One that was very similar to the modern archetype of a cunning serial killer a la Ted Bundy. He gave the killer yet another nickname, the intangible nemesis. Coming up with serial killer nicknames is not everyone's forte, it would seem. One thing that continued to bother people the most was the lack of obvious motive. This reporter explained that the killer functioned completely apart from normal human behaviour. He killed simply for the love of it. The article must have resonated with the town because many began recommending that police look into the more elite members of society, searching for a killer who so easily blended in. Some surmised that he might be a doctor with medical knowledge, similar to theories about Jack the Ripper's true identity. Law enforcement received a tip that Ula had been involved in multiple affairs prior to being murdered. This gave them reason to look into her husband as a possible killer. Maybe he had learned of her affairs and gone crazy with jealousy. The female owner of a house of ill repute backed up the story about Ula and claimed that she had met men there on several occasions. On the night of her murder, she had shown up looking for a room, but they were all booked at the time. She couldn't say whether Ula had been travelling with a man in her carriage or not. It also came to light that Jimmy may not have been the loving husband he presented himself to be. It was said that he was in fact quite an abusive drunk, and that happened often. Soon, Jimmy Phillips was arrested for the murder of his wife, and shortly thereafter, Moses Hancock was arrested for murdering his wife, Susan, that same night. Most residents found it hard to believe that Moses had killed his wife, and the similarities in the crimes made it seem unlikely that they were committed by two separate people at almost the same time. After Moses was arrested, rumours started to circulate that he was actually a secret drunk and abusive husband, though these rumours were seemingly fabricated by Mrs Hancock's sister. People found it more plausible that Jimmy Phillips had murdered his wife and tried to make it look like a midnight assassin murder, and the real midnight assassin had killed Susan Hancock. Everyone seemed to have their own theory, and there was plenty of speculation behind closed doors. 
Unfortunately, these arrests of these men did not put the minds of the Austin women at ease. Most citizens didn't believe the men were guilty, and they thought that at least one woman had been killed by the midnight assassin. If some fiend had crossed the line to begin attacking and butchering prosperous white women, then no one was safe. At the end of 1886, a black servant girl named Patty Scott was found murdered in her quarters in San Antonio, over a hundred miles away. She too had been chopped up with an axe. The murder looked very similar to those in Austin, and now another small city of around 40,000 people quickly sunk into a state of fear and paranoia. Surprisingly and fortunately, that turned out to be the only crime of this nature in San Antonio. A few weeks later, back in Austin, the fake Pinkerton detectives announced they'd received a telegram stating that Ulla Phillips had had an affair with a man named William Swain, the state comptroller who was running for governor very soon. This was a scandalous accusation, not only because of the affair, but because the logical conclusion for most was that whomever she had been having an affair with may also have been her murderer. There was a political firestorm and the mayor quickly sent the fake detectives back home, having invested even more of the city's money. The detectives had made the situation in town even worse and had made no progress on the case. It's still unknown if there was any truth to this rumoured affair, and no one ever found out who had sent the telegram to the fake Pinkertons with the tip about Swain. But once the rumour had started, smaller scandals surfaced, and the man who was once the majority favourite for governor ended up losing to his opponent in a landslide. Around this time, an unrelated but curious thing happened. The manager of the Austin Asylum, Dr. Denton, had an assistant superintendent, a young man named Dr. Given, who was actually married to Dr. Denton's daughter. Not long after the double murder, Dr. Denton went to a judge to have his own son-in-law involuntarily committed and sent to an asylum in a different part of Texas. There was no explanation other than vague statements about him having a madness. He died in the other asylum after a short period of time due to an unexplained illness. Interestingly, young Dr. Given had gone to medical school in Edinburgh and had a classmate named Robert Louis Stevenson, a man who would go on to become a very famous writer. One of Stevenson's most popular stories was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, about a doctor who is a normal man by day, but at night, a madness overcomes him and he turns into a terrifying criminal named Mr. Hyde. In May, the Jimmy Phillips trial began, and like many modern sensational trials, it was packed with spectators. During the trial, the previously mentioned hotel owner testified that she had seen Ula with five different men, three of which she named in court, and two she didn't know. She never mentioned William Swain. There was no evidence presented that Jimmy even knew about these dalliances, or that he was angry with Ula. 
several doctors testified that it would have been physically impossible to give himself the axe injury he had received to the back of his head, and furthermore, they had a cast of the footprint found in the blood at the crime scene, which was undeniably larger than Jimmy's foot by comparison. It was a shock to almost everyone involved in the case when Jimmy was found guilty of second-degree murder and sentenced to seven years in prison. Many were convinced that money had changed hands behind the scenes, either to keep the names of public figures out of the trial or to secure a conviction to ensure Austin was no longer seen as a murder city. In November of that year, nearly a year after the last murders in Austin, Jimmy Phillips's conviction was overturned and he was given a new trial. And while he was awaiting his new trial, the prosecutor dismissed his case completely. The next sensational trial, that of Moses Hancock, was set for June 1887 and was almost identical in circumstance. There was no physical evidence against Moses, and the trial ended in a hung jury leaning towards acquittal. Instead of trying him again, the prosecutor's office chose to drop all charges. A few weeks after charges against Moses were dropped, the first attack in over a year occurred. This would be the most shocking yet, and also the furthest from Austin, in the tiny town of Gainesville, population 2000, about 250 miles away. On July 13, 1887, two young women from prosperous families were in their bedroom. Jeannie Watkins and Mamie Bostwick had barely reached adulthood when their lives were cruelly interrupted by this axe-wielding madman. The injuries were much the same as they'd been in previous cases. Mrs Bostwick had come into the room after hearing noises and saw a man jump out of the window but was unable to give a description. Only Jeannie succumbed to the wounds she had sustained and Mamie survived with serious injuries. Now the whole state of Texas was in a panic, and one newspaper gave the killer a new name, the Texas Jekyll, in reference to Jekyll and Hyde. Around the same time, the truth about the fake Pinkertons finally came to light. Everyone was outraged that Mayor Robertson paid for these frauds, even after he realised his mistake. He'd paid them about $3,400 of the city's money, the equivalent of $90,000 nowadays, a massive sum when all they got in return were some political rumours. He decided not to run for re-election as he knew he wouldn't win. Soon, there was a new mayor, Joseph Nally, who immediately ordered the installation of two dozen large electric lights downtown so there were less shadows for the killer to hide in. Some of those lights still stand in Austin to this day. As 1887 gave way to a new year, there had been no major crimes in Austin since the double murder, and the city seemed to be coming back to life and returning to the way things were. With the newly elected officials in charge, the residents were optimistic again. It really was a new era for all of Texas, and the double murder in Gainesville was the last horrifying murder attributed to the midnight assassin. 
the city began to put it all behind them. Then something strange happened. A spate of extremely similar murders started occurring in London, but this time the victims were sex workers. When the Jack the Ripper murders began, immediate connections were made between the two reigns of terror. Many wanted to believe it was the same person. Texas hoped the monster had left for good, and London refused to believe that such a brutish killer could possibly be English. There were, however, a number of key differences, specifically the MO and the weapons used. Still, the speculation continued, and one thing they did share in common is that both killers murdered two victims in one night in a very short time period. England was trying desperately to find a Texas connection, and there were a few. Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show had been in London not long ago, and some cowboys had stayed on in town. They also found some Lakota Native Americans from the show that had been left behind when the show left London. Scotland Yard questioned both groups and decided none of them were their man. Thankfully, they were able to help the Native Americans return safely to America. A local came forward about a Malaysian man he'd met at a bar who'd been working on ships as a cook. This man had threatened to murder prostitutes after one had robbed him. Detectives wondered if this could be Maurice, the Malaysian man they'd tailed in Austin. He was known to have sailed off to England in the middle of the killing spree. This speculation hit the media hard, and they all but convicted Maurice in the papers. However, Scotland Yard could not find him anywhere in London, and so believed it was a false connection. Each of these two cities have reacted in completely different ways to their serial killers. While London has embraced the mythology of Jack the Ripper, Austin has swept their midnight assassin under the carpet. It's never mentioned in history books, and people just stopped talking about it. It was like a bad memory everyone just wished to forget. That is, until a journalist named Skip Hollinsworth decided to write a book about the murders. The chronology had never been pieced together in long form, and so, using hundreds of old newspaper articles from two different countries, he pieced together the story of the Midnight Assassin. He tracked down relatives of those involved and made a story that came alive on paper. It's fascinating to think that such a prolific case is now so obscure. Much of our research for this episode comes from his book, Midnight Assassin, a work that truly transports the reader. It's an exhilarating piece of investigative journalism, and we highly recommend you get a copy. Skip is also known for his fantastic long-form crime articles in the Texas Monthly, so if you haven't read any of them, there's another recommendation. We're interested to hear your theories on this case. Do you think it was any of the known suspects, or someone completely off the radar? With all the discussion of the Golden State Killer lately, it was startling to read about a killer from so long ago with a similar MO. The Midnight Assassin truly lived in the shadows and preyed on some of society's most vulnerable people. One hopes he will eventually be identified, though 
chances seem pretty slim. That concludes our exploration into the Midnight Assassin of Austin. Thank you so much for listening to this deep dive case. It was an interesting case to explore, and we hope you found it as fascinating as we did. And so, until next time, keep that nightlight on, because you never know what awaits you in the dark.